And if you would, turn in your Bibles to the 11th Psalm, Psalm 11. If you want to follow along in the Pew Bible, it's on page 533 of the Pew Bible, Psalm 11. As we look to move into a new year. As I listen to people speak about the new year, about what's coming in 2024, I hear a lot of anxiety. I hear a lot of fear. I don't mean here at church per se. I just mean in the culture at large. Even comedians are joking about how bad 2024 could be. Now to our young people, this is quite normal. But I'm old enough that I can remember a time when people used to look to the new year with expectation, even with excitement and optimism. I don't know exactly when that changed, but I think we can agree it has changed. For my own part, I find myself this week worrying, uh, worrying quite a bit. First thing that came into my mind as we approached the new year is ironically, sadly, the first thing that came into my mind were, I wonder if there will be mass shootings tonight and tomorrow as people gather vulnerable people in large groups. Or maybe or you are looking more at the world picture and you see the potential for several more wars to add to the ones that are already ongoing. And at even a more local and basic level, all of our local papers and publications warn us that uh, there's a huge rise in the problem of hunger even here in the Philadelphia area. In short, there are many reasons to be anxious and fearful from something as sophisticated as artificial intelligence to something as simple as bacteria, we live in a dangerous world. To help with all that, I want to reintroduce you once again to this psalm, Psalm 11. It is entirely the inerrant word of God, but it is also the word of a man chosen and inspired by God's spirit, David. This man has been used of God to help me to help the church deal with her fears for thousands of years. In part, I think this is because his own life was so incredibly dangerous and dysfunctional, more so than you can possibly imagine. When you pick up a Psalm of David, you can always begin by saying to yourself, he has more trauma than me. Therefore, whatever he's about to say comes from the crucible, not from the comfy chair in a library. In fact, it's hard to communicate to you briefly uh, just how absolutely brutal his life really was. He was the eighth son of his father, and being rather expendable, he was sent to shepherd the sheep. Now, prior to industrialization, this meant facing wild animals in the wild with a piece of wood. It, it meant finding places to sleep without GPS. It meant facing bandits and rogues and whoever else might be out there, and many other things that most of us could not handle. Then suddenly, David is taken from this life of danger and simplicity into a place of danger and uh, in quite difficult circumstances, quite elaborate circumstances in the royal court. He marries the king's daughter, Saul's daughter, Michelle, 
and becomes best friends with the king's son, Jonathan, only to have that king, Saul, his father-in-law, hunt him like an animal, condemn him to death, and make him Israel's most wanted. Even a group of priests who helped David, sort of accidentally helped him, were quickly slaughtered, butchered for their so-called treason. We can only imagine how he processed events like that. Meanwhile, everyone that knew him, and this went on for years, everyone that knew him had to make a decision, either to protect him or try to kill him. There was no in-between. In the middle of all this, on a personal level, his wife was taken from him by his father-in-law and given to another man. He's forced to pretend that he's insane so as to survive with the Philistines for a time, who, by the way, their champion, Goliath, he just killed a few years earlier. They don't like him very much, and they have thought of some really nasty, slow ways to kill him. He escapes only by drooling and pretending like he is insane. The hiding and the running finally does come to an end, but only after his best friend Jonathan and Saul are brutally slaughtered by Israel's enemies. He then inherits a nation that is small, embattled, and not even fully on board with his leadership. And then he goes to war. War, when going to war meant beating someone to death with a relatively blunt object, when war meant smelling the breath of the person you were killing and stabbing them or them stabbing you slowly to death. And then later on, when he's older, when you think he might get a bit of a break, when it seems the kingdom has finally been settled, his closest friends betray him. And by betray him, I don't mean they they didn't endorse his campaign. I mean that they literally tried to kill him and overthrow his reign. Behind all of this uh, insurrection, of course, was his own son, Absalom. And you can imagine that pain, the pain of a father whose son has intentionally plotted to kill him. A son who systematically takes his wives to a tent on a public hill and assaults them sexually in order to take over the realm from his father. Now, here's my point. When David says, in the Lord, I take refuge, I think we should listen. First and foremost, because this is the word of God, but also because it's the testimony of a believer whose life was unparalleled in terms of pressure and stress. So let us listen carefully today to how David faced the extreme anxiety of his life And may God use it to strengthen us in our own time of need. So if you would please stand as I'll read to you Psalm 11, verses 1 through 7. The title says, To the choir master of David, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, The wicked bend the bow. They fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. 
The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we come to you at the beginning of a new year, and there are many fears and anxieties around us, and in fact, the whole world seems to shudder and to shake. But we, with David, lift our eyes up to heaven and see that you are enthroned and undisturbed in your majesty and your glory. Give to us, through this psalm, a deeper and greater impression, both of your love and your power, and of your great sovereignty over all things. And being convinced of this, send us out with courage to face what the new year brings. This we pray and ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. A great musician is one who can give voice to ideas, experiences, or emotions through their music. When Hulst wrote, Mars, the bringer of war, you feel in the music the idea of war, don't you? When Handel wrote the Hallelujah Chorus, he captured in words and in music the glory of God. Or to go completely in a sad and different direction, when Mick Jagger wrote and sang Satisfaction, a song filled with the frustration of never being satisfied with your life, You listen and watch, and everything from the body language to the lyrics to the music communicates his message. The song became a huge hit because Jagger captured the restless immorality and dissatisfaction of the 60s and 70s. All these artists and many more have been popular because they could translate ideas, feelings, and experiences into music. At their heart, artists want to express life through their works. They want to capture something of life with all its beauty, complexity, and tragedy. And when then, after they've caught it, they want to pass it on. They want to translate it to us. They want to grab something from the stream of their existence, grab something as it passes through them, and then sing, write, draw, paint, or picture it. Usually, although not always, doing this helps them cope with how they really feel and what they really see. And they usually, that is artists, they usually feel too much to begin with. We often forget that David was quite a musician himself. We tend to think of him first as a king, a type of Christ, a prophet, but he was also a musician and a magnificent artist. As such, David, like all other musicians, sought to give voice to his experience, his faith, and his feelings. And most of the Psalms are just that. Although we often treat the Psalms as stale theological relics, they are actually songs and prayers. They seek to express life, love, fear, lust, guilt, and every other human experience in the context of faith and worship. 
Well, in this song, Psalm 11, David explores through poetry and music, fear, anxiety, and faith. In doing that, he touches every one of us, doesn't he? If we're willing to listen. Everyone here is daily anxious. Everyone here struggles with fear and faith. Sure, uh, things like an archer in the dark are unique to David the king, his period of life. But the feeling, the emotion is the, th the same. I think it's especially important that we think about fear and anxiety, not just because it's such a common experience, but because it lies behind so much of our other sin. Quite often, for example, our anger problem is actually driven by fear. I don't know if you've noticed this before. We're afraid of failing financially. So we are furious when our, sp or when our spouse spends too much at the store. Our other sins are also quite often tied to fear. Fear is often the reason we don't do what God has commanded us to do. For example, just to give a, another random example, when a young adult in the church begins to date an unbeliever, we might assume, I think a lot of us do, we assume immediately that we need to go to them and remind them of what the Bible says about being unequally yoked. And of course, we should do that, and that's fully appropriate. But quite often, we can miss the deeper struggle going on in the heart of that young person. The real motivation for their sin if they're honest, is that they're afraid, afraid of being alone, afraid at failing at love. So they have chosen to lower the standards out of fear. And so it's true, I believe, fear is the emperor of all maladies when it comes to the Christian life and our most common sin struggle. And so we come to Psalm 11. And the first thing you'll notice, hopefully, about this psalm concerning fear is that it divides into two sections. If you use the Pew Bible or an ESV, they actually do this for you. They put a little bit of space there between verses 3 and 4. So in verses 1 through 3, someone is advising David to be afraid. Maybe it's his own heart speaking, or maybe it's a fearful advisor. And then in 4 through 7, David responds with reassuring thoughts. God is still in his temple. There's reason for confidence, even in the worst of times. But let's not jump to the solution too quickly, because we need to appreciate first the power of anxiety as it is reflected in verses 1 through 3. Let's read those verses again really briefly. David writes, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? First, notice about this. Someone is talking to David, aren't they? Someone's talking to him. David says at the very beginning, I trust the Lord. So how can you say to me, run, flee, hide? So who is saying this? It could have been a counselor, one of David's men who was afraid for him. Uh, but this isn't provable. But I like to think actually that it's David's own heart. That this is a conversation with his own heart. That this is an internal conversation. 
as if in this psalm he's sort of caught himself, as we often do, acting in fear, living in fear. And he's saying to himself, as I hope you do to yourself often, after all God has done for me, after all God has done for me, how can I actually be doubting him right now? How can I fall in once again into the pit of despair and anxiety after he has shown me again and again and again his faithfulness? And I think, and I know Calvin and others agree, that this is an internal dialogue between David and his own heart. But whichever it is, whether it's his heart or it's a well-meaning advisor, we need to note that this person speaking cares for David, at least outwardly, outwardly. They seem to be on his side. It seems to be a reasonable voice. If this is his inner voice, his own heart, it's a, a voice of warning, a, a voice of self-preservation. If it is a royal counselor or warrior ally, maybe even a spouse, they too want to preserve David's life. And right there, you see, you have part of what makes anxiety such a tough sin to identify and defeat. Unlike lust or anger, it is very difficult at times to recognize the voice of fear as an enemy. After all, proper fear, or we call it caution, can be wise. David did at one point run from Absalom. It was the proper time to do that. And he knew how to hide from Saul. He did that. There's a time for retreat. There's a time for caution. So we need God's guidance to discern whether the person talking in our heart, whether ourselves or it's a person speaking to us, whether they are speaking from a place of sinful fear or simply in wise caution. But we also need to be concerned when all we hear are words of caution. I think it's wise as we look at Psalm 11 this morning to ask ourselves who are the counselors in our lives who regularly urge us to courage? Are there any at all? Now, second of all, as you see a voice speaking, listen to the way, the really brilliant way, David, the artist here, captures the voice of fear. Fear says, quote, flee as a bird to a mountain. What a perfect, timeless metaphor for fear. David here captures the essence of fear, the fluttering of fear, the desire to escape, the desire to hide, to be safe. Birds don't stay in the same spot for long, do they, normally? They move quickly from the slightest danger. It's a nervous animal. It's a vulnerable animal. And the mountain, the image of the mountain, functions in a similar way. In David's day, by and large, you lived in the valley, you lived there, you grew food there, you dwelt in the cities in the valley, but then when you were attacked, you would flee to the mountains as your last refuge. Armies have a hard time traversing mountains. It's a place of refuge for a startled bird. So this is a wonderful, vivid picture of what it's like to be human and what it's like to be afraid. We're like a bird bouncing about and seeking refuge seeking a stable and safe life. And did you also notice where this command to flee is spoken? David says, this is said, and it's said in my soul. Verse 1 says, how can you say to or in my soul, in the deepest part of me? Now think about that for a moment. He doesn't say that this voice is just one of many counselors he hears from each day. 
No, this fearful voice is in his soul. It's speaking to his soul. David is saying that this voice of fear, whether it's coming from inside him or it's a counselor speaking to him, we don't know which, but either way, the voice of fear gets to the heart of him. We hear others speak and we speak constantly, but there are words that cut down deep that really get in us and get down to the core of us. And fear is one of, if not the most powerful voice we contend with every day. So there is someone speaking They have beautifully captured the heart of fear, and they're speaking this message into the very heart of David. This is not a voice you can just ignore. It has real, raw power, and it won't be shut out. One last thing about this voice of fear in verses 1 through 3. The voice that's speaking has reasons. Don't miss that. It has reasons. It's reasonable. It has reasons, and actually they're good reasons. They're thought-out reasons. This is not like the kind of fear you have when you go through a scary ride at the boardwalk, where you know you have no real reason to be afraid. It's just sort of a silly thing. No, this is real fear. These are real fears. They're thought-out fears. All adults, sad to say, all adults know that the childhood fears soon pass away and the far scarier realities of real adult life take their place. And so here the psalmist gives reasons. There's real legitimate reasons for his fear. First, he says, we have enemies. We have enemies. In verse 2, we're introduced to an archer. Now remember, in his world, we're not used to archers, but in his world, archers can kill from a distance. You can't see it coming. You don't ever see it coming. You hear a little whistle, maybe a sound, and it's over by the time you've heard it. David has faced wild animals and he's faced adults in combat. But at least in those situations, you have your weapons and your enemy firmly in front of you. But an archer can be lurking anywhere. It's an enemy you can't face that you don't see coming. This was very real for David through much of his life. And notice that David describes the archer in verse 2 as one who is concealed in a corner in the dark One of the things that makes anxiety so powerful in our lives is the what if factor. The what if. And that's, I think, pictured here by the archer in the dark. Fear doesn't have to be about anything that's out there that you can see. It can be about what you can't see, what might be out there. To use David's language, it shoots from the dark. Fear is all about the unknown. Fear is all about anxiety. What if I don't get that job? What if someone attacks me or my family? What if my kids don't end up following the Lord? The unknown is a powerful source of anxiety. And like a bird, we want to run away, to somehow escape the uncertainty. And yet, no matter how much we try, there will always be evil lurking in the shadows. There are always enemies in life, and they are often working in the shadows of our life and even in our own heart. And so the voice of fear says to give up because the situation is hopeless. In verse 3, David says, after all, what can the righteous do when the foundations are destroyed? The foundations mentioned here point to some sense of order, structure, and predictability For David, on more than one occasion, the whole order of Israel just collapsed. 
priests and judges were co-opted to serve Saul's maniacal agenda. The nation was embattled. Its leaders were entirely corrupt. The basic foundations of law and order were collapsing. The idea that you could step outside your door and feel somewhat certain about what was about to happen. David lived through periods where that did not exist, where the foundations were ruined. And I don't think there's any question that something of that is happening to us today. Maybe not to the same degree, but it's hard not to feel, as we all must, that our society is collapsing in so many ways. Yes, money, our military, and our power remain, but the society itself is utterly lost. God says that he is in control, but human experience seems to suggest a world of disorder, chaos, and violence. Seemingly random tragedies occurring every day. What hope does a bird have in such a world as this? Well, it's a perfect picture, isn't it? Maybe it's almost too good a picture, making your blood pressure go up a little this morning. Uh, Makes us uncomfortable, and it should. Just reading these verses put us a little on edge. After all, this is what's going on inside of us when we're afraid. For years now, I've used in personal conversation with some of you You've heard this before, probably the illustration of a bull in the china shop of life. A bull in the china shop of life. To translate to a younger audience, the picture is of a big bull who has somehow found his way into a shop that sells fine china, expensive plates and teacups that you lift with your pinky raised. In this analogy, our, our lives are much like that shop. We try to have things lined up as neatly and carefully as we can. We have insurance for that, a rainy day fund for this. There are days when the shop can appear even orderly, secure. However, the reality is the teacups are breakable. The shop is a good metaphor for our lives because our lives can so easily be turned upside down and shaken out. Now imagine with me that one day this tidy little shop In through the door strides a full-grown bull with his horns. He may be docile at times, but even when he's docile, he can knock things over easily by just swishing his tail. The bull represents life in a fallen world. The bull is not fully predictable. We may try, and we do try at times, to get rid of mayhem, the bull, but we really can't ever seem to get him out the door. Others of us don't even try to remove mayhem anymore. We fully realize he's not going to squeeze back through that door, so we just get under one of the tables and we hide. But both of those approaches to fear, trying to wrestle it out of your life by perfect planning or trying to hide in distractions, neither approach will work. Those of us who try to manage everything perfectly, you know who you are, will be constantly disappointed and terribly exhausted because in reality, we're trying to fight anxiety with just more anxiety. The stress of living this way, of jumping on the horns and trying to wrestle the bull out of the shop will leave us even more damaged and even more fearful. On the other hand, hiding under the table, losing yourself in food, medication, and entertainment will also have its terrible price. 
Those who try to run from mayhem, from fear, often find themselves running from life itself. The consequences to themselves and those around them can be devastating. To hide under the table is to shrink your life to that little spot under the table and to essentially abandon the shop altogether. These are the two ways we most often deal with anxiety and they don't work and more importantly they don't glorify God. God does not want believers to cower in the corner and ignore their responsibilities to the world and to the community. But he's also not glorified by the Martha who has no time to sit at the feet of her savior because she's so busy working to remove all the disorder and danger from her life. Either way, courage is missing and life gets shrunk down, which is just another way of saying, head for the hills. Now at this point, you may be saying, I see your point, pastor, but what other option do we have? Well, there is another voice in the psalm. Let's hear God's answer through David. The voice of faith now and of courage begins at the very beginning of the psalm, in the very first part, verse 1, in the Lord I take refuge. Here's the alternative. And then David lays that out in verses 4 through 7. Look at verses 4 and 5 especially again. The Lord, he says, is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Introducing the psalm. The voice of faith says, the Lord is my refuge. Remember what we said about the mountains being a place of hiding in distress. Well, David is saying that God himself serves as his mountain, his mighty fortress. David's whose life had more anxiety than yours and way more anxiety than mine found the peace he was looking for. He found the refuge you are looking for, but he didn't find it in a mountain fortress. Rather, he found it in the person of God. Instead of running this way or that, he has learned to run to God. And the rest and peace that we're seeking from our fears will never come by simply ordering our lives perfectly. Now, again, this doesn't mean you shouldn't buy insurance or watch your kids at the park to make sure they're safe or study for your next exam. You should do all those things. But here's the key. You don't do those things because you believe those things will save you from distress. Rather, you do those things because they're part of basic obedience and faithfulness to our God who is enthroned. Taking some reasonable precautions is more than fine. It's actually biblical. However, we're not meant to get our security from those things. All you can do is face the bull and live with him in the china shop. The only way to live comfortably with a bull in your china shop is to believe that the bull, after all, is God's bull. David is saying, I found peace in my dangerous life, standing in the midst of all this with God. I lift my eyes to his throne. I remember that he is on his throne and that he is also in his temple, the true temple in heaven. Now, putting it that way, David has given you an important hint, I think, as to how you are to understand this confidence. He heard the voice of fear in verses 1 through 3, but then he heard the voice of confidence in public worship. 
It was in worship, like what we've done today, that David was reminded that God was on his throne and that God was in his holy temple. Remember, Psalm 11, the very first line of Psalm 11, reminds us that it was written for the, quote, chief choir master. You see that introduction, don't you? It was written for what? For this setting, for corporate worship. Public worship in the Bible is not only the place you praise the Lord in your life, the place where you learn to trust him. We praise and we pray night and day. I hope you do in your car or beds at night. However, the Bible and all Christians before us understood that personal praise, what we do privately, is the echo of what we do publicly in public worship. And that's what's happening here. He hears the voice of confidence in the assembly of God's people. He writes the hymn so that in the assembly, in the congregation, we will remember together when we're anxious that God is on his throne and God is in his temple. In Psalm 73, a psalm that's, I think, deeply connected to this psalm. In Psalm 73, Asaph, the composer of that psalm, is deeply anxious because he sees the wicked living good lives. They're making it. They're prosperous. Something we see today, too. And his faith begins to fail because he sees God's people struggling. He sees the wicked doing well. And then he wrote Psalm 73, verses 2 through 3. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What is Asaph saying? I think Asaph was hearing the voice of fear. He was saying the foundations are being destroyed. There's no order in life. There's no rules. The wicked are prospering. And then people who are violent, who we all know are incredibly evil... Are, they're doing great, and then the righteous are being persecuted. But then, in the midst of almost falling, he says this in verse 17. I, he says, I felt this way until I went into the sanctuary of God, the temple. And then I understood their end. In other words, he forgot who God was for a moment. But public worship saved him. Worship music brought him back. God may for a time allow wicked people to prosper, but then Asaph remembered what the future looks like for those people, and he shuddered. David does the same thing here in verses 6 and 7. He anticipates, he sees the sulfur and the fire and the cup of judgment that is coming, and when he remembers that, he remembers that the world actually is ordered, though it fills unordered and disordered. The voice of faith in the face of fear is never clearer or more potent for us than in worship. That is why worship is so central to the life of our church and to the work of our pastors. So David has found the peace he was looking for, but not in sticking his head in the stand, nor binging on YouTube and hoping it all goes away. No, he's found peace in being extremely productive. No, or in trying to think of everything and troll everything? No. He found it by looking to God, especially in the context of worship. The second thing I want you to notice about this voice of faith is that it also has reasons. Remember how we said the voice of fear has reasons. It has the archer. It has the shaking foundations. So also to respond to this, David now gives, and I'll do this briefly, two reasons 
to not be afraid. Two perspectives that brought him back from paralyzing anxiety. First, we're to rest because God is in his holy temple. This means that God is near us and with us. He saw it in worship, yes, but, but the thing he saw, the realization he had, is that not so much that God is in the temple beside him, but that God is in his temple, the heavenly temple. Now, without going into all the theology of this, I'll trust that you know a little bit of this. You'll know that the temple of God today is you and me. And so when David says, don't be afraid, God is in his holy temple, it's another way of saying to us, God is with you. Or in the words of Jesus, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And second, he says, not only is the Lord in his temple, he is on his throne. He's on his throne. The idea here is that no matter how much earth may be shaking, God is not moved. He's not toppled by what is going on in our lives. He will be there and he will reign over everything he allows into our lives. The foundations may seem to shake as if evil has become good and good has become evil. But that cannot be because the order of good and evil is upheld by the Lord. And so David can write in verse 6, Upon the wicked he will rain coals. Fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is, or we might say, the Lord remains righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. Now, at first glance, it may be hard for us to understand this. Why was David so comforted by God's judgment of the wicked? Is it something ugly and cruel for David to rejoice so much in God's justice? Why is God's justice so comforting? Well, the reason I think is simple. David, although not perfect, and he's far from perfect, you know that, he is a righteous man. And what he's expressing is his confidence that God, because of who God is, eventually will vindicate the righteous. Now, please understand that when David calls himself righteous, he means that differently than the way Paul talks of righteousness. Paul speaks of righteousness as the idea that we can be holy, that we can in and of ourselves completely earn our status with God. And of course, Paul says you can't do that. When David and the Old Testament talk about righteous, they usually mean either God, who's perfectly righteous, or believers who are genuinely, authentically seeking to walk with God. They're sinners. They need the sacrificial system. They make atonement for their sins. They're not perfect people, but they're genuinely walking for the Lord. And often they're suffering because they're choosing to walk with the Lord. When they go to make that business deal and they can lie about how much their stuff is worth, they tell the truth anyway. And they take the loss themselves and they look to God. They say, I'd rather be righteous. I'd rather do the right thing than have the money. That's what David has in mind here. And because he knows God is righteous, he knows that in the end, whatever happens here, in the end, it will work out. And he can look down the corridors of history. And what he really describes here in verse 6, 7 is Sodom and Gomorrah. Or you heard it in the book of Revelation, the end of all time. When these things will come about, when order will be restored. How can he know that will happen? How can he know the foundations of the earth will not ultimately just collapse and everything will become chaos? Because he's looking to the throne. He's looking in the temple and he knows that God will do all things well in the end. The late David Pallison of uh, CCF in Philly said it, and I've never heard anything better, and I can't improve on it in any way. Dr. Pallison said of fear, 
Quote, we have good reasons to be afraid, but we have better reasons not to be. I don't know if Pallison was thinking of this psalm, but he could have been, because that, that is exactly what we have here. We have reasons to be afraid. We have reasons to approach this next year with a lot of tension and concern. And David, notice David never says in this psalm that all those reasons are invalid. The foundations of the earth, the structure of human existence, they do shake. They shake all the time. We talk about bad things happening to us and we say things to each other like, my world fell apart, it was, it was like the room was spinning. Likewise, you can pretend there's no evil out there, but there is. And you can't always protect yourself and your loved ones, no matter how hard you try. The archer is there, and even if he's in the shadows, and the foundations are always shaking. Truth is, we have no idea, I have no idea, the kind of heartbreaking hardship that might be right around the corner from us. The voice of fear is somewhat right about our world. It is a scary place to live in many ways. And again, to deny that or ignore that or to cover it up with drugs, alcohol, or entertainment and distractions, none of these things can silence fear because at the end of the day, we do live in an evil world. The Bible's answer is so wise and so lasting. It's not to dismiss fear's reasons but rather to turn your eyes upward and give you bigger reasons for courage. Fighting fear in your heart is all about doing what David does here. You take those good reasons to be afraid and you overcome them with better reasons not to be afraid. Let me give you a picture that has always stuck with me. In the book of Exodus, uh, you might remember Moses' first miracle it's almost sort of backfires, or at least it seems to. Uh, Moses throws down his staff, and it becomes a snake. But then Pharaoh's magicians come in, and whether it was some kind of trick, or remember, they were deep in the occult, so it, it could have been demonic. They, they throw down their rods, and they become snakes as well. At that point, it seems that God and Pharaoh are pretty much evenly matched. God has his snake and Pharaoh has his snakes. God has his champion and Pharaoh has his champions. Fear and faith, hope and despair seem evenly matched, equal powers vying for our world and our lives. But then what happens? Moses' snake eats and devours the others alive. Now the point is this, Pharaoh's snakes were real snakes. Pharaoh's power was real, but not as real and not as powerful as God. As you face fear and anxiety this week, please know that it is real. I can't deny that, and you shouldn't pretend otherwise. But let the greater truth of God swallow your fears alive. God is in his holy temple. That's you. And God is on his holy throne. Yes, we have good reasons to be afraid as we approach a new year, but we have better reasons not to be. And so we can say together that we are persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. 
Father, we do thank you that as we approach a new year with things, many things unknown to us, that you would give your grace to us to face those things with courage. We will not find that courage by looking around us, but only by turning our eyes to you and your glory. So give us, even this day, a fresh understanding of your glory and your goodness. Cause us to look back at your past faithfulness, to look forward to the day of judgment and vindication, and to look upward to your Son, who is seated in glory and power. Fill us with an understanding of these things, Father, so that we might be courageous in the year to come. This we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.